Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. Time to switch to hefty, ultra strong trash bags. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. There are best bags yet, and they cost less than Glad Force Flex were sold head to head. So you'll be happy, happy, happy. Hefty, ultra strong with Arm and Hammer odor control. Available at Sam's Club. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Change Agent's Dilemma for Tuesday, September 18th, 2012. I'm your host, Heather Stagel, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, as I do once a month on Blog Talk Radio. This show is one of the many ways I help equip individuals to lead organizational change at Enclaria LLC. The Change Agent's Dilemma is how to influence change without authority. And my goal with this show is to provide ideas and share stories to help you do just that. Today my guest is Todd Van Nest, who is here to share simple ways to lead complex change. Todd is founder and principal at Last Word on Change. Through speaking engagements, workshops, and executive coaching, Todd helps executives and their teams become true change leaders who have lasting impact on their organizations. He has presented at many professional associations, emceed corporate leadership events, and led planning and execution workshops for client leadership teams. In 2007, he received a U.S. copyright for the research-based change management metrics he designed, the only copyrighted index of leading indicators of change management success. Todd has led strategic planning, human resources, and organization effectiveness functions as part of the executive teams at world-class companies. He earned his bachelor's in psychology from Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and a Ph.D. in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Todd, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. It was a pleasure to meet you here in the Midwest just about a month ago, and I really appreciate uh, your willingness to to share some of our discussion with your audience. Great. So let's just dive in. We're talking about simple ways to lead complex change. So what's the difference between change that would be simple versus change that is complex? Well, that's a great question. You know, I I think there's, in my experience, one simple thing, one simple indicator of what's simple versus complex. And and this will hopefully ring true with, with your audience today, and that is just talking about your experience as a change leader. Uh, I talk with change leaders every day, and what I learned and really the genesis behind the work that I'm doing started with leaders who were installed or failing change programs, and I I could tell you to a person when I asked them the question about what their experience was, um, it was something bordering on misery, um, which is a little (laughs) bit of a, thank you, which is a little bit tragic, you know, because this is a time when we're doing high visible visibility projects. We're doing maybe even career-making projects, and we're doing the most exciting work in the organization. And we tend to be drawn to these things because we're growth leaders tend and change leaders tend to be oriented towards growth and towards opportunity. And so we tend to dive in headlong and want to contribute. Um, but then, as I continued to work with these leaders, even those who were leading what most people would indicate as their most successful change efforts, were still describing, if not misery, a great deal of disappointment in their experience. And and what I found, in short, was that there's so much pressure around what happens in large-scale organizational change that it's really easy for people to kind of get sidetracked. And 
not focus on the things that they were drawn to the opportunity for, and kind of get overwhelmed by all the things that um, unfold in a large-scale change project in large, complex organizations. And, and it helped us arrive at a place where we were starting to determine through our work with these change leaders what they were doing that was relatively simple and what were they doing that actually, in some ways, were shooting themselves in the foot, making things more complex. And to, again, to shortly answer your question, what we found is that those who were most successful are the people who were, their experience was characterized by a great deal of focus. And focus does not mean I'm focused on the methodology that I'm using and I'm going to drill it through this organization or, or pound it through this organization like a hammer, but rather focused in the sense of I know what I'm trying to accomplish as a change leader and I'm engaged in that and working with people through that on an everyday basis as opposed to maybe being wrapped up in some of the process and distractions that occur in large projects. So would you say then that keeping change simple is a matter of keeping it focused, or is there is it more than that? Well, I think the, it, it, it might sound like an oversimplification to describe it as focus, but focus comes through in so many different ways. Um, you know, a, a lot of people have watched, for example, Tiger Woods' uh, you know success rate and his, in some ways, his career derail over time. Uh, Tiger Woods is kind of a nice analogy for what happens a lot in change organizations. You're trying to drive a complex change through a complex organization. And if, if you look at the people who analyze what's going on with Tiger Woods, you know, when he's throwing clubs and he's upset, it's not just because he's used to being excellent and, and that particular day he can't achieve excellence. It's because there are so many things going on in his game and his swing at one time, and one little thing can just send the wheels flying, as opposed to, you know, I think about, uh, an older golfer, a gentleman named Ben Crenshaw, who was very successful, by no measure just a journeyman golfer. He was very successful throughout his career, but was in his 40s before he won his first big major tournament. And he was focused on that time on some very simple instruction from one of golf's great gurus. And that was the advice was just simply take dead aim. Um, if, you, if you're focused in a tunnel-like way on doing the right kind of things during the the, the game of golf, then it tends to push a lot of that complexity aside and allows you to focus and you gain the benefits of that focus. And so as I started working with change leaders, the more and more we started to peel back their experience, the more and more we found that if I tend to clutter myself with a lot of methodology and a lot of toolkits and consulting from a lot of different places, you know what, I, I tend to add baggage as opposed to I have a core methodology. I'm not saying that having a, a, a change process and approaching change in the way that we do in, in uh, today's organizations is not helpful, um, but being encumbered by that in some way and taking your eye off the ball, which is change is still a people process, right? So being encumbered by all of that baggage and not being focused on some of the fundamental things around how you engage people in the change process has a way of just kind of derailing people's change efforts. Um, and, and becoming less focused. Okay. Uh, well, here's an easy question and answer, right? How do you keep it simple then? <laughs> yeah, it, everything's easy, right? Um, yeah, I struggle a little bit with, you know, saying that change can be simple because, of course, people will think that that's a bit of an oversimplification. But, again, if you think about your own experience leading change, um, one of the there's just some some questions that we're used to asking these days, right? With the influence of Six Sigma and a lot of other methodologies and organizations, so you can think about kind of the 80/20 rule. 
Um, my intent when I start a change project um, and, and the change leaders that I work with, their intent is always to focus 80% of their time, energy, passion, effort, and, and interactions in the organization around really engaging people and getting people fired up about the change and helping them make a personal connection uh, to the change that's going on in the organization. And maybe about 20% on... Uh, you know, the, the methodology and the, the kind of the mechanical processing of the change throughout the organization, the implementation, if you will. But when I work with people who have gotten a little bit distracted and are actually working in ways that make the change more complicated and therefore tend to derail or stall their projects, what I found is that um, that 80-20 has been reversed that what they find themselves doing is working like a what I call a super process administrator. They become known throughout the organization as somebody who's simply driving process and mechanics through an organization as opposed to um, what they wanted to do, which was be very engaging. And I'll, I'll give you a very simple example of this. Um, almost every change leader today, anybody leading a change project, and any consultant that they might engage would uh, involve a very a, a key process early in the change um, project called a change readiness assessment. Um, I don't know of a change project today that hasn't moved forward without some form of a change readiness assessment. But we tend to make those a rather complex exercise. We tend to try to build it into a survey and we tend to um, segment our, the population of stakeholders and go after different groups and then when we get some messaging or some some key things back from the survey. We tend to parse that almost like the, you know the political analysts on TV today during a, during an election cycle, um, and and we just keep layering in more and more complexity as opposed to the very very simple uh, process, which is based in listening. And are you actually having a dialogue with your stakeholders, or are you just looking for you know I'm sending out a survey, and if nothing comes back in the red, if you think of a scorecard kind of mentality of green, yellow, or red. If nothing comes back screaming at me in red, we're okay to move forward. And the challenge is when I tend to make things more complex, uh, I tend to miss some of those very simple messages. And if I choose to move forward in some ways, what happens is we get very distracted and we might move forward in a way that um, doesn't serve us well. And then we end up in you know, later stages of a change cycle wondering how come we missed some of these messages very early on. So the short answer to your question about how to keep it simple is to really just kind of assess your own experience and, and to say 80-20, am I focused 80% of the time on being positive and energetic and engaging in the organization, or am I spending 80% of my time as a, as a process cop, as a super administrator, somebody just driving mechanics through the organization? Uh, and every, to a person, every change leader that I talk to aspires to be more of the former than the latter, but a number of things, including our own motivation around success and trying to drive things through an organization uh, in a very structured way, tend to get in the way of that. Okay. Now, as you mentioned, we talked about a month ago, and um, I enjoyed our conversation. One of the things that I picked out of it were that you talked about four choices that change leaders make that help keep change simple or help keep focused. Can you talk about the four choices? Oh, I sure can. Um, you know, again, the idea is that there are just a few things that intuitively strike uh, really committed, talented change leaders um, that, that sticks and works for them. And, you know, that's one of the ways why we started our conversation. I was drawn to, you know, 99 things that you can do to influence 
uh, change in an organization, particularly where you don't have the ultimate authority in the organization. I uh, think of the golfing analogy. I couldn't boil it down to one thing, of course, something as simple as take dead aim, um, although sometimes we like to kill people who get in our way, right? Um, the, uh, what we did is in analyzing what distinguished the more successful change leaders was we were able to boil it down to four key choices that these leaders were making. Um, and they were the kind of choices that led them towards that 80% experience that I was describing of being more positive, more energetic, and more engaging throughout the change process. And so here are the four choices. The first one is to simply every day stop yourself and ask the question, am I choosing people over process? Now, again, that sounds like a bit of an oversimplification. Of course, I'm a people person, and I'm engaging, and I'm in this project leadership role, and I know that change is a people process, but again, in the spirit of the pressure and the traps and the things that kind of uh, coalesce around us or conspire around us to derail us sometimes, kind of move us away from the people side. So if you've ever find your, found yourself in that situation where you'd say, well, I'd like to have a more detailed conversation with the stakeholder about that, uh, but we're already 30 days behind schedule, or we don't have the resources to do that, or that's really the job of the executive sponsor. If I could only get him or her engaged in that conversation, we would be able to address this source of resistance or, or this line of questioning from our stakeholders. And whenever you do that, you can see how you've now distanced yourself. You've, you've almost physically made this choice in the spirit of putting up a wall. You've almost physically made this choice of serving process over people. And again, what we found is that those change leaders who were very successful in driving that 80% positive, engaging, and energetic experience throughout the organization tended to choose more often than not people over process. So they tended not to fall into those traps. The second major choice that we found these successful leaders making was choosing what I call total stakeholder engagement. And so you heard me characterize um, there are some very sophisticated exercises that we undertake in um, today's change processes, like a readiness assessment. However, um, they might not be the best way to actually be engaging with your stakeholders. Um, or you might, in the spirit of efficiency, seek to sample your stakeholders. And what happens is when I go in and I look at a, a stalled or, or derailing change project, I find very frequently that there tend to be in and out groups that emerge groups of stakeholders who tend to be generally receptive or positive or have people participating on the change team and tend to be shared information in a way that they become an in-group. They tend to be more informed and they tend to be more engaged. They're easier to reach out to, frankly, for the change leader in terms of their experience. It just becomes less painful to look to them for feedback as opposed to some of the people who may in some ways be an out-group. They just whether you recognize it or not, when you're in the middle of the change process, you tend to be less engaging. I haven't, I haven't gone out of my way to go engage that person or that group of stakeholders recently because it's just easier to talk to the ones who are more like-minded or seem to be coming along with us. So we talk about this second choice being around total stakeholder engagement, engaging all of those stakeholder groups and not kind of making some shortcuts because of some of the pressures that arise for change leaders. I'm going to keep talking about the third and the fourth one briefly, and Heather, interrupt me if you have a question. Okay, go ahead. The third major choice that we find successful change leaders making is that they choose to measure the right things. Now, um, there's a lot of people uh, in your audience who probably have no problem accessing a number of measures, metrics, scorecards, developing custom scorecards around their change methodology or around their change initiative. 
Um, but what I find is that too much of what we measure tends to be a lag measure, meaning that I've, I've taken the measure after I've seen some results. Having a results focus is good, right? Um, but after, after the fact, I'm collecting some information on results, and I'm not actually collecting the kind of feedback that helps me be more responsive and helps me be more successful in adapting to the organization as I drive this change throughout the organization. So if I'm engaged in total stakeholder engagement and I'm using critical feedback and dialogue with my stakeholders throughout the life cycle of the change project, I'm more likely to pick up on what I would call leading indicators of change. That is, do I know that Todd, for example, who is a key stakeholder in this process, as I'm at maybe step three, which I might call implementation in my change model, and pick a model. You can pick Cotter or a ProSign model or whatever. Step three might be something around implementation or go live. Um, if I'm if I'm engaged Todd in a conversation and I'm getting signals from Todd that um, he's generally supportive, but he really can't articulate what the change in his role should be at this point. He doesn't see his goals any different than they were before, and he's not sure that he's measuring his success any differently than he did before. I've, I've basically kind of knocked over a tree in the woods. Um, I, I've kind of progressed through and marched through the change initiative without really having the impact that's going to be important for moving forward. And so choice three is around measuring the right things, which in, in my experience has become leading indicators of change, meaning am I engaging my stakeholders and finding out the information I need to know so that I can actually adapt, if you will, in real time. The people in your audience, Heather, who would um, be familiar with Six Sigma would, would be familiar with the terminology around or the process around gating, G-A-T-I-N-G, gating a project based on hitting certain marks or indicators along the way. And I would argue that this is the most important content to put out in front of you as you gate your way through a project, not some kind of lag indicators um, or simply just check marks of completion against your project plan. And the final and fourth um, key choice that these successful change leaders made, again, those leaders who drive positive energy, engagement, and uh, are very engaging with their um, stakeholders throughout the life cycle of a project and, are, and experience a great deal of success, the fourth key choice that they make is to run their project in what I call a no excuses, no alibis kind of way. And this one, it, it may not sound a lot different to your audience because it's really kind of a culmination of the three choices that preceded it. Um, if, in fact, I'm choosing people over process, if I'm engaged in total stakeholder engagement, if I'm listening closely and engaging them in a dialogue that will help me determine when we're ready to move forward, and if I'm doing the right kind of things to really drive a mindset change and an adoption of new practice in the organization, um, I can operate very transparently throughout the life cycle of this change initiative. And I never find myself, as I have early in my career, or as I had early in my career, I never find myself in front of the management team or the board of the directors saying, well, you know what, um, we completed our project. Unfortunately, completion becomes uh, survival, perhaps, becomes the number one criteria for a lot of change efforts in, in complex organizations. Um, instead, you know, what we're trying to avoid is instead of finding yourself in front of the board of directors saying, we didn't achieve everything that we wanted to achieve, but we're in a better place than we were when we started the project, um, wow. You know, that, that's what the psychologists in the group would call a rationalization. That doesn't feel like a really strong message 
to deliver to the board of directors. And I've delivered that message and felt really, really uncomfortable delivering it um, and made up my mind that I didn't want to do that again. And so operating in the way that's described with these three choices leading to the final choice, which is a no excuses, no, no alibis approach, was very helpful. You know, if you think about it in the context of the way that we've described being engaging and engaging stakeholders throughout the process, think about it. So much less finger pointing is going to happen at the end of the process when you're, or, or the project when you're evaluating the results with your stakeholders or with the board of directors than if you didn't operate in this way. Um, you know, if you go through a, your audience could Google a list of, you know, why change projects fail. And you could, you know, sort through the top 10, top 10 lists of why change fails. And you get these, you know, finger pointing exercises around uh, the executive sponsor wasn't engaged. We didn't have top management support. We didn't have the resources that we used. But when I go in to work with change teams in action live during a change initiative that's failed or stalling, what we find is that those results or those issues are really kind of um, what you call um, uh, a straw dog, you know, the kind of things that people are pointing at um, or excuses rather than um, it, when they examine their own behavior and the kind of choices that they make along the way, they realize that if I were doing the kind of things that are reflected in the four choices that I just described, um, they could be much, much more successful in terms of um, winning and um, uh, uh, displaying and leveraging um, the executive sponsor support, the top management team support, et cetera. Yeah. And I, I've had that experience, too, with clients working uh, with them when it's like, well, let's figure out, you know, what are the excuses? We start with what are the excuses? Why are things going badly or why are things not going the way you expected them to? And like you said, it's usually things around um, key leaders not doing what they want to do and what they need to do or something like that. And so as we start taking away, well, let's – Let's take away those excuses so and figure out, well, what do we do about it so we don't have that as an excuse anymore? So I think that I would agree that's a good approach. Yeah. You know, you think about all the energy that organizations put into change planning and change communications, and you just identified something that's a, a, a relatively simple act that can happen very far upstream in a change program that has a huge impact. Um, you know, wh when we go in and assess uh, – an organization that's now in what I describe as recurring cycles of failure or disappointment with change, they keep saying we're spending more and more and putting more and more resource into our change program. And I ask them what the number one outcome was. And when we chart it out and you kind of do the math, um, what the math demonstrates is the number one outcome was we did more training and uh, paid more consultants as a result. Um, and, but we did more training and we did more communication than we ever did, but the outcomes didn't change. And um, kind of buttressing yourself or inoculating yourself um, against some of those risks and engaging the organization in a very different way in terms of identifying where have we pointed blame in the past and how do we avoid that in the future um, can be very, very powerful. So that, that's actually an excellent example of doing something very simple in the process that has a, that has a huge impact on success. So I just want to reiterate what those four choices are. Um, I'll just tell them the way that I heard them. Uh, one is choosing people over process. Uh, the next one is seeking total stakeholder engagement versus partial. Right. 
Um, the third is choosing the right things to measure, especially leading indicators, and having a no excuses, no alibis kind of a mindset to get results. That's exactly right. Great. So uh, how would you recommend, you know, if somebody says, yeah, I would love to try this, try having these four choices, is there something that you would recommend as far as a, a, a routine or something to get into to assess yourself and how well you're choosing these things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I'll, in the spirit of simplicity, our theme for the day, um, I'll, I'll reinforce what I, I think is the most simple and and not because um, your audience needs the most simple message, but because, as they would know, um, if you can break something down into a simple practice that you do many times in a row, it becomes a habit. Um, and that's really where the power comes from. And And the most basic form of habit that I've seen in terms of how to apply this thinking is literally just to have, whether you're one of those people that writes it, um, we don't have too many daytimers around anymore, but if you put it on a laminated card or on your employee back of your employee badge or you've got it on your phone or your, um, your smartphone or your organizer, um, just putting these four questions down every day and you kind of finish the day. You, you, if you're going into an important meeting, you can ask yourself these questions. Or if you finish uh, at the end of every day, you ask yourself these four questions. Again, your experience as a change leader tends to be a pretty good guide um, because, you know, just practically I'll, I'll illustrate if you were to ask yourself these four questions at the end of a long day and you're feeling that kind of my rear end is dragging a little bit and this is so much more work and so much more difficult and it's not yielding the enthusiasm and fun and buzz that I really thought I would experience as a change leader, in those moments when you ask yourself these four questions, very frequently you identify, you know what, what I, what I would really enjoy is having this conversation with my most important stakeholders as opposed to where did I spend my time today? Oh, my gosh, I spent my time in meetings doing progress updates or I spent my time in my cube um, kind of planning how to artfully, that, that means complex, right, how to artfully circumvent some of the resistance and the messaging that I'm hearing that tells me that we're not being as successful as we'd like to be. You know, to, to sit in behind the, the walls of the fort and artfully diagram how are we going to work around this problem. Um, you know, if I ask myself this question, I arrive at, well, this is how I spent my time today. You kind of immediately, very intuitively, kind of say, "Ick, that's not how I want to spend my time. That's not energizing. That's not why I'm drawn to this kind of work." Does that make sense? Yes. So, well, so that's that, a lead-in to uh, my next question, which is how can you tell if you're not doing these things? Are there any, like, eye-opening, like, whoa, <laughs> I'm missing something here, kind of checkpoints or lookouts? Well, you know, the, the, there is a very simple indicator that we just described, which is you can ask yourself this question as kind of a personal reflection um, each day or after a key key meeting or key phase of the project. Um Usually what I tell people when I'm coaching them as a change leader is to contract with one or two people on your change team to just, you know, here are my criteria for being a successful change leader. We have all the other kind of process indicators and management-oriented tools that we're using to, to feel like we're making progress in the organization, but this is what I'm using as a guide, these four choices, and there are behaviors related to this. And when you see me doing things that aren't related, or, you know, aren't related to the positive choices, um, along these four simple questions, um, please let me know. And for some people, that's, you know, th literally throw a pen across the, the conference room table at me, you know, because you just heard me say, 
I think that's a really important source of, of pain on the part of our stakeholders, but we just don't have time to, you know, to, to learn more about that. Um, when you see me do that, kick me under the table um, or, or do something cute to kind of call me out. Um, so that, that's kind of the second way to do that. Um, the, the more detailed way I would, I would tell you that you, know, you can figure out whether or not you're doing this well or not is it really boils down to the level of, you know, almost every change leader would describe themselves as partnering in a very contemporary and positive way, partnering with their stakeholders throughout the organization. But what I would tell you is until you engage with your uh, stakeholders and partner with them in a way where you say, this, I want this kind of feedback, keep me honest on this, these are the watch points, these are the behaviors that are important to me so that I become known as a positive source of change and energy in the organization, and I'm listening to you and modeling the values, in fact, that we charted, we probably put in our project charter a number of values around trust and listening uh, and adaptability. So please keep me honest on that. Until you've done that and until you've empowered your stakeholders in a very complete way to help you guide the project through these gates as we've described them, um, you really haven't made a commitment to stakeholders in the way that you've probably uh, want to or should in, in, in terms of guaranteeing your success. And so what I would tell you is the way to know that you're not doing is to keep reaching out to others. The most powerful uh, question that I have found for whether we were doing a, a seminar here on the phone or I was interviewing a change leader and their change uh, executive sponsor sitting here at the conference table where I'm at today, um, when they say, uh, I, I might ask them, how, are you being successful? And they would say, look at each other and pause, and then they'd go, um, well, yes, or maybe yes, relatively so. The most powerful question I ask is just, how do you know? Which is my version of the question that you asked. And what we discovered from doing this work is you really don't know unless you've reached out to other people and asked them to gauge how you're doing around these kind of questions. Um, unless you've reached out in that way, it's, it's very easily easy to get insulated within a change project and miss some of those signals. That's such a great point to involve people in how, you know, helping give you feedback so that you're not the only one giving feedback to everyone else. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and Heather, you hit on the point about um, the blame game and um, relying on sort on yourself for feedback. And, you know, I say there's a lot of things that conspire to kind of isolate the change leader, like the amount of pressure, you know, this is a career-making kind of endeavor that I'm engaged in and, and um, I'm reporting to the board. And, all, you know, all of those things kind of conspire um, to insulate us and kind of send us into our cave a little bit, even though that's not our intent or maybe not even our core personality and how we're known in the organization. Um, and so it's really, really important to make this part of your discipline as a leader. Um, and I find that makes all the difference in the world. Great. Well, Todd, thank you so much for being on the show and explaining some uh, simple ways to, uh, what do we say, simple ways to lead complex change. So uh, really quickly, uh, how can people find out more? Well, they could find out more by visiting uh, my website, which is www.lastwordonchange.com. And they can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, where they can either um, follow my commentary or they can also see my blog on the website that I just listed um, under either my name, T. Van Nest, or the branded name, Last Word on Change. Great. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Heather. It's been a pleasure.
And thank you for listening to The Change Agent's Dilemma. If you would like to find more resources and learn how we might work together to help you influence change in your organization, please visit enclaria.com. Until next time, take care and best wishes for your change initiative. Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. Time to switch to hefty, ultra-strong trash bags, always at an ultra-low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. There are best bags yet, and they cost less than Glad Force Flex were sold head-to-head. So you'll be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty, ultra-strong with Arm & Hammer odor control. Available at Sam's Club. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. Time to switch to hefty, ultra-strong trash bags. Always at an ultra-low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. There are best bags yet, and they cost less than Glad Force Flex were sold head-to-head. So you'll be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty, ultra-strong with Arm & Hammer odor control. Available at Sam's Club. Hefty, hefty, hefty.